welcome to a very special extra episode of Retelling the Bible. A few weeks ago, I sat down with two of my podcasting buddies, Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast and Stephen Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. We were discussing one of my favorite episodes from last year. Episode 6.15, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. My little story sent us all on a wide-ranging discussion of a number of biblical topics and down more than a few rabbit holes. I am very pleased to be able to share our discussion with you now. Extra Episode Abraham's Three Mysterious Visitors Welcome back to another collaboration between Scott McAndless of Retelling the Bible podcast, Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast, and then me, Steve, host of the History of the Papacy podcast. And we are, again, taking one of the a clip from one of Scott McAndless's narrations or narrativizations of a story from the Bible, and then we are going to discuss Scott's thought process behind that, and then some of the background and the context of the particular Bible verse that Scott took. And Scott is taking us all the way back to the book of Genesis today, pretty early into the book of Genesis today as well. So, Scott, why don't you set up this clip for us? Absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. This is one of the most amazing stories of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And it's this this story, it's a foundational story of uh, the time when basically Abraham was sitting outside of his tent and all of a sudden three strangers came along and he offered them some hospitality. That's basically what the story is. That's all it is. But what I like to do when I tell my stories is I like to dig into the narrative and try and play it out and figure it all out practically and realistically. And I got to tell you, as I dug into this particular story of Abraham and Sarah and their three guests, I fell deep, deep into a rabbit hole. Because as I began to figure out how practically what was going on in the story, I ran into all kinds of questions about measures and what Abraham was doing and how long it would have taken. and it was just kind of stunning uh, what I realized as I dug deep into the story. So perhaps it's, it would be good to play the the clip from the story, and then I can sort of explain that this was actually the the whole process I went in through as I prepared the story, as I prepared and wrote the story. Abraham smiled to himself. As he got up off the ground, brushed off his clothes, and headed back into the heart of his encampment. Yes, 
Yes, he thought. That was just perfect. I made sure to set their expectations really low. I promised them nothing more than a morsel of bread and a bit of water. Oh, they are going to be amazed when they see the meal that I put in front of them. And with that, Abraham ran eagerly to his personal tent and called out to his wife, Sarah, inside. Quick, Sarah dear, I want you to take three measures of your very best flour and bake some cakes. We've got visitors. Okay, let's just pause for a moment here. If I want to imagine Sarah making her cakes, I kind of need to know how much flour we're talking about. Three measures, huh? Well, surely that isn't very much flour. Maybe like three cups? That might be enough to make a little bit of bread, like Abraham has promised for three people. But let's just check. Okay. So, the original Hebrew text says that he told her to take three siyas. That's a Hebrew word for a measurement. But how big is a siya? Um, internet, how big is an ancient Hebrew siya? According to the Strong's Concordance Dictionary, a sea is approximately the size of one and a half pecks. One and a half pecks? Huh. That's not very helpful. I mean, yeah, maybe that would be helpful if I knew how many pickled peppers Peter Piper picked when Peter Piper picked a peck of them, but since I don't know how many pickled peppers Peter Piper picked when he picked a peck of pickled peppers, I think I'm going to have to convert that into something I can understand. So, if one sia is as big as one and a half pecks, then three sias would be about four and a half pecks. Internet, convert four and a half pecks into cups. Four and one-half pecks equals 168 cups. A hundred and sixty-eight cups? That seems like a lot of flour. Hey, Internet. How much would 168 cups of flour weigh? That depends. Is the flour sifted or unsifted? Sifting changes the volume. How should I know that? Abraham didn't say whether the flour had to be sifted or not. Okay, Internet. Let's say 168 cups of sifted flour. How much would that weigh in pounds and in kilograms? 
168 cups of sifted flour weighs 53.70 pounds, or 24.36 kilograms. 25 kilograms? Man, that's a lot of dough. But we must leave poor Sarah to figure out where she's going to find a bowl big enough to mix 25 kilograms of flour because that was just Abraham's first stop after leaving his guests. And I just wanted to say that that's exactly the thought process I went through. I was going through the story, and in particular, I looked at the question as Abraham spoke to Sarah and told her to prepare three seahs of flour. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Obviously, my first question is, well, what's a seah? How big is a seah? And I went to the internet, and those were the actual answers that I got. And so I came back that a seah is one and a half pecks, and... I don't know about you, but I have no idea how big a peck was. And so I went through this whole, you know, internet search until I finally figured out exactly how much flour uh, Abraham was telling Sarah to prepare. And it turns out, as I say, um, what's 168 cups of uh, sifted flour, which works out to about 53 pounds. That's for Stephen or 24.36 kilograms of flour for Gary and me. Uh, that's a lot of flour. That's a lot of flour. Just the practicality of the story, it just struck me so deeply. Um, and then I began to think about these poor guests that Abraham had left sitting outside of his tent with a promise you know, that I'm just going to give you a little bit of bread and a little bit of water to drink. And how long did it take before he came back with, you know, cakes made of 25 kilograms of flour and an entire calf and everything that went with this? So it's not a practical story. That was the thing that struck me so deep. Yeah, I mean, that calf is going to take at least half a day on a rotisserie, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a full calf and 50 odd pounds or 25 kilograms of bread for essentially five people, four people, four, because probably uh, Sarah's not getting invited to table. So, oh, that's a point. Of course not. No, no, no. She just makes the stuff. Yeah. And how long does, you know, given you got what, one oven, two ovens? that you're trying to, to bake all of this bread in. And we haven't even asked, is it leavened bread? Do you have to let the, the, the yeast rise? How long is this all going to take? Yeah. And, and the more you dig into it, the more unrealistic it seems. So I began to ask, you know, what's really going on in this story? And why is it presented in such an over-exaggerated, ridiculous way? Scott, you come up with some interesting conclusions to answer that question that really made me start thinking. So what, what was your thought process? Well, it's pretty clear as you look at the story, this is all the contrast. I mean, the contrast between what Abraham 
says he's going to give his guests. He says, oh, I'm going to give you a little bit of bread and a little bit of water. And, and this incredibly huge feast that he produces is so extreme uh, that that seems to be the point. And it's, the point is, he is giving to them this extraordinary, over-the-top hospitality. From there, I began to jump with to many other ancient stories about hospitality. Because the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world, was absolutely full of stories of hospitality. You maybe heard them, probably the most famous one, the one of, of Bacchus and Philemon. It's, uh, it's an ancient Greek myth, uh, but it's basically the same thing. It's uh, two gods. I had to look that up. You had to look up Bacchus and Philemon. Two gods are walking around. They're walking around in Lystra, which is someplace in Asia Minor. Nobody welcomes them. And they walk around and round. And, and the, the, the two gods are Zeus and Hermes. And nobody welcomes them. Nobody gives them any hospitality. And they finally come to this poor little cottage of Bacchus and Philemon, who are poor. They have very little. And yet they give everything they can to these two gods. They give them this incredible feast. As a result, once the feast is over, Zeus and Hermes take this couple, Bacchus and Philemon, take them up a hill. They tell them to look at all their neighbors, and basically the entire country is flooded out. So all their neighbors who were unhospitable, who didn't welcome these strangers, lose everything. And Bacchus and Philemon are rewarded. They become priests of Zeus and Hermes, and their little cottage is turned into a temple. And when you compare that famous story of hospitality to the story in Genesis, there are so many parable, parallels, because not only does Abraham welcome these strangers, they appear to be complete strangers with incredible over-the-top hospitality, but of course, two of those strangers kind of famously go on from there to the city of Sodom, where they do not receive hospitality. They receive the opposite of hospitality. People of, of the city attempt to gang rape them. And as a result, the whole city of Sodom, famously, of course, is destroyed. So it's kind of the same story. The people who give hospitality are rewarded. And the people who do not give hospitality to strangers are destroyed. This was a story that was in the culture all through the ancient Mediterranean world. So that's sort of what led me through this whole understanding of what's going on in this passage. Can I just mention a few little tiny, tiny, tiny little points about the story, which has got nothing to do with what you said. At the very end, verses 14 and 15, God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah says, shall I in truth bear a child, old as I am? And if I remember the chronology, she's in her 90s. Well, if I was Sarah, I'd laugh too. And God comes back. Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? I will return to you in a year and you'll have a son. And then Sarah says, I did not laugh, for she was frightened. And then, tiny little sentence, came the reply, you did laugh. I don't know, is that trying to make some sort of point that which has gone over my head or is it just a little flourish? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. One, of course, is a whole origin of the name of Sarah's daughter, uh, Sarah's son, sorry, because his name is Yitzhak, 
Isaac, which means laughter. Oh, oh. So part of what's going on here is this whole discussion about laughter is about an explanation of, of why the child is going to be named Yitzhak. And there's also a second when she actually then has her child and she laughs. Of course, this time she laughs because it's ridiculous that she should have a child. And then when she actually has a child, she laughs with joy because she finally has her heart's desire. And once again, the child is named Laughter. So that's certainly part of what's going on. Well, that explains that very neatly indeed. I think those two stories, Genesis 18 and 19, they fit together so well because it's, it, it's classic Bible. It's inverting two themes where Abraham gives the extreme uh, version of hospitality, which in the ancient Near East was hospitality was the absolute most important thing that you could do. And then they go down the road a, a bit and they get the absolute and extreme opposite end of hospitality, like where you said they were going to gang rape the visitors. And then, and then Lot gives us another version of extreme hospitality where he's going to offer up his daughters to the mob for the action instead of his guests. I mean, there's so many different things that we can think about it, and biblical scholars have thought about that Lot takes that sanctity of the, the guest-host relationship to its extreme again. Even while his neighbors are doing the extreme opposite, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And not that I admire Lot at all for what he chooses to do, but that's a whole other story because it's totally unacceptable. He's somebody he, well, I mean, take it for the story for what it's worth. If it is a story to just illustrate, he's making the absolute sacrifice for philosophical belief. Yes. I mean, the idea is that he offers up his greatest possession, which is his daughters, who are the only basis from which he has sort of his ongoing life because only, you know, they only saw eternal life in terms of having children, right? That's all he's got. He's only got daughters. And so he's willing to give them up and their virginity up to save his guests. So yes, he's giving the ultimate. But of course, the, the assumption behind that is the really objectionable assumption is that his daughters are his property. And yeah, I can't live with, with that assumption, of course. But yeah, I, you're absolutely right. The story needs to be, be treated as a one story. And whenever people pull out just the story of Sodom and they end up saying that, that, oh, well, it's obviously just a condemnation story about homosexuality, they are totally missing the point of the story because the whole thing is very clearly an extended story about hospitality and, and one who offers it and one who fails to offer it. Now, on what you call the Doe incidents, I found that absolutely fascinating. Apart from the fact that it's, yeah, three seers is an immense amount of flour, and as you point out, the same word is used in Matthew and Luke in the parable of the yeast. For example, Luke 13, 20, and again he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed, mixed in with three measures of flour until it all was leavened. Now, as you also point out, in English, it's the word measure, but I, I checked Strong's Greek, 
And yes, the word used is um, satire, 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 whatever, which is not a Greek word. And it is, as you said, it's just a transliteration of the Hebrew uh, seer. So why in, Ma- why in Matthew and Luke do they go out of their way not to use a Greek unit of measure? The Greek language was full of descriptive terms for measures. And I'll tell you something else I noticed too. If you look up the Genesis passages, the, the Genesis story of Sarah and her doe, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of Genesis, that word, sia, is translated into Greek as metron which is just the ordinary Greek word for a measure. It's not a specific quantity, and yet somehow the gospel writers, when they wrote this passage of this parable of Jesus down, they didn't use the word metron, which would have made perfect sense. They went back and they found the Greek, the Hebrew word. Either it somehow had been preserved from Jesus or the, I don't know who did it, either, you know, somehow the the, the Hebrew word had or Aramaic word had been preserved from what Jesus had actually said, or somehow the gospel writers went and found it. But yeah, they used the Hebrew word. And yes, it's exactly the same amount of flour that Sarah uses in Genesis is in Jesus' parable of the woman and the yeast. Coincidence, I don't think so. There's That's got to be really intentional. I can only think that the phrase three seers became proverbial, as in, I don't give two hoots. You never say, I don't give 16 hoots. It's always two hoots. Don't know what a hoot is, but there's two of them. So I'm wondering if three seers, it was just uh, an expression for maybe largesse or something? But it certainly adds a deep dimension. You know, this this parable of Jesus, it's like one of the shortest parables, right? The spirit, what the kingdom of heaven is, is like a woman who took three seahs of flour and mixed them with leaven until they were all leavened. That's the whole parable. And yet with this connection to Genesis, we have maybe images of, you know, the kingdom is maybe also about abundance and maybe about extreme hospitality. You know, is all of that intended to be brought into this very, very short parable? And yet we miss it because we just translate it as measure. To come back to, you know, when I was talking about these ancient myths of hospitality and how popular they were, and I told you the story of, of Bacchus and Philemon in Lystra, it's really interesting to note that, and this is actually another episode I did, but in Acts chapter 14, that whole story of Bacchus Philemon and Philemon gets replayed in the book of Acts. So Paul and Barnabas are wandering around in exactly the same place where that whole myth of Bacchus and Philemon takes place, and they are literally mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, and the people start sacrificing to them because they are afraid that, you know, last time Zeus and Hermes went wandering around in this area, we missed them. And they decide that Paul and Barnabas are these gods, and they are determined to give them sacrifices and hospitality. So it's, it's kind of amazing to know that this same myth that was popular in Asia Minor actually appears in the New Testament. One issue that I completely left out and didn't think about was the whole question of, is it kosher? Is the meal that Abraham 
gives to his guest kosher because this is actually something that Jews have been arguing over for a long time. One thing is when you slaughter a calf and it has to be kosher, there's a very carefully prescribed way of draining the blood out of it that makes the preparation even longer than I imagined as I told my story. So there's that, there's draining the blood. But the other thing in, in modern, modern kosher dining is you cannot have milk and meat and beef in the same meal. And that's exactly what Abraham gives. He gives curds and whey. And, and yeah, that's led, led to all kinds of discussions among the Jews about what did Abraham serve God, a non-kosher meal? How could that possibly be? be? The rabbinic commentaries I could find, or they look at things and I thought, why are you, or it would never have occurred to me. Like in, in one tract, they, they're talking about the three angels. And he says, three people were walking in the road, should not walk in single file, but should walk with the teacher in the middle, the greater of the students on the right and the lesser to his left. And to demonstrate, to prove that, he says, and so too we find with the three ministering angels who came to Abraham, Michael, the greatest of the three in the middle, Gabriel to the right, and Raphael to his left. Now, I didn't know that Michael was considered to be the greatest angel, in, in my head, I've always thought Gabriel, and, and I don't know what their jurisdictions are. My understanding is Michael is supposed to be the angel of the nation of Israel. So he is their, their protector and you know, often portrayed as a warrior. I think Gabriel, the significant thing about Gabriel is that he is the messenger. So he is, that's why he's the one who comes to, to Mary in the New Testament, for example. Uh, I don't know really about Ariel, though. Raphael, sorry. <laughs> uh, and another comment a guy called Rashi makes, he makes, why were there three angels? And he says, one to announce to Sarah the birth of the son, one to overthrow Sodom, and one to cure Abraham, for one angel does not carry out two commissions. So they're not big on multitasking. The rabbis are preoccupied about is one single word, one single word. In the passage, we have, okay, Genesis 18, 1. Yahweh appeared to him by the terebinths of Mamre. He was sitting at the entrance of the tent as the day grew hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing near him. Now, that word near, that is a translation of the Hebrew preposition a law or a love in all English translations I have seen, a law or a love is translated as near. But according to Strong's, a law or a love can have approximately 10,000 different meanings. Well, it does a lot of work, that word. And one of those meanings is against or over. Now, in English, they've chosen to translate it as near. The rabbis chose to translate it as over. So there aren't three angels standing near Abraham, they are standing over him. And they get, to, they, they get their turbans in a twist, trying to work out why are they standing over Abraham. And they go into all sorts of conniptions about, about why that was happening. The one other thing I've learned about uh, traditional Jewish interpretation of the story, and this one surprised me as well, is the story that comes before it. Uh, because immediately before this is the 
covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham and every male in his company are all circumcised. And this story comes after that. Thus, some Jews have taken it as Abraham is here in recovery from major surgery, and that God comes to visit Abraham in his recovery, and that Jews will take this then as, so must we also visit people when they're sick, because God visited Abraham when he was sick. And that's an interpretation I never never even dreamed to read, you know. <laughs> so it's wonderful to hear uh, some other people coming at these things. Yes. I did a little poking around with the early Christian interpretation, and it appears that, I mean, it's pretty universal between as early as Justin Martyr. So you're talking the 200s AD, Irenaeus, who's a little bit later than that, Origen, Eusebius of Caesarea, John Chrysostom, a little bit later, and then Maximus the Confessor, a little bit later. So you're talking as early as no later than the 600s, all of them saw it as a type or, or a foreshadowing of Jesus. And if you look at Andrei Rublev's icon, it's called sometimes the hospitality. He's making icons in Russia at about the same time as Maimonides or the, the Rambam. I did not make the connection that those were the same people until just recently, but um, about the same time, he depicts the that icon that's representing that story from the Bible as Jesus, clear as day. But so I thought that that was a really interesting and that the, all of the early Christian writers were also calling that or making it a, a connection to an epiphany or an appearance of the pre-born Christ. Hang on, how exactly do they tie it in? Are they saying this is, the angels are like, uh, as Scott said, when Gabriel came to Mary. You mean it's meant to be like that, a foreshadowing of that? or? Yeah, it's that that it's Christ there, and then oh. the, it's the Trinity that's oh. at Abraham's table. Yeah, I think, I think that's sort of a, that's an extrapolation from the fact that there's three of them, and yeah, that has tended to be the Christian interpretation. As a Christian, I got to say, it seems like a stretch to me. Thought is that you're talking, I mean, it's so early that there has to be something connecting into Second Temple Judaism thought of this idea of the threeness. And I just don't believe that they concocted that completely out of whole cloth. You mean the fact that they chose three? Well, that there was th three there and that they connected that into Jesus being there. Well, I mean, so yeah, it, to me, it seems that it's so embedded so quickly that this is the interpretation. It, it has to come to somewhere out of Second Temple Jewish thought. If Justin Martyr is talking about it, I mean, that is so early. That's Justin Martyr's hundreds of years before we even get really into a, what you could call a rabbinical Judaism. You know, so there's definitely a strain of something coming out of that. Well, according to my handy-dandy chart, which you can get from my website for nothing, Justin Martyr flourishes shortly after Matthew, Luke, and John were written. So you're saying that there's another tradition there 
of threeness in Second Temple Judaism? I can't really think of three. The odd thing, too, of course, in the story is that three immediately after the dinner becomes split. And so one stays behind, and there's this fascinating conversation with Abraham about how, how many people it takes to save a city. And two, just like in the story of Bacchus and Philemon, go on to Sodom. I mean, I know the early Christians very quickly began to see Jesus all over the Old Testament. <laughs> when in Genesis 1, God says, let us, they said, ah, Trinity, right? I can't blame the Christians for jumping to Trinity from three. I think that's probably a more straightforward answer than a lot of the, because if you're referring to God in the plurality in Genesis, then you're automatically talking, then you have to deal with that there's multiple gods at that point. Which, of course, there is, but <laughs> that's, that's a whole other discussion. And again, I think that that has to come from somewhere. That's just not something that people are cooking up. You know, one person said, hey, I got a great idea. How about this? I think that it had to have been an idea that was floating around that got grabbed onto. I mean, like you say, maybe it's a Second Temple idea, but it also could be a Greek philosophical idea that the early church is picking up because Lord knows they picked up a lot of those as well. That's a good point. I think that everything about Abraham is so strange. He's the ultimate city slicker. I mean, he comes from the most densest, high-end civilization on the planet. I, don't, I think that even China doesn't have anything that's really comparable at that point. And then he goes to the absolute backwoods, and he's living in tents and dealing with all these people. And then he runs into God sends him there. And then he runs into this guy, Melchizedek, who, for some reason, is the king-priest of the Lord High God. It makes no sense to me, and I, I, won't, I haven't found any like really compelling reason. Why is Melchizedek the king-priest of the Lord High God? He just appears out of nowhere, like Gandalf or something, doesn't he? I think that's a story that's based on the uh, incorporation of Israelite religion into the Jebusite religion in, in Jerusalem. He's actually the priest of a different god. Abraham actually probably speaks back to him about his god rather than Yahweh in his response, uh, if you look carefully at what's going on in the text. So I think that that's actually the story that was told by Zadok who is the founder of the Jerusalem priestly line. Melchi means king. Melchi Zadok, the king Zadok, is Melchizedek. I developed that in another episode. So the whole Abraham thing, there are lots of little oddish stories, aren't there? And not to mention all the times that Abraham pimps out his wife when he goes to, to visit his, when he goes down to Egypt and... <laughs> And things like that. And that's how he gets all rich, too. I'd forgotten the old, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Now give me all your cattle, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but somehow, this is the, the amazing, most righteous man in the whole Bible, and, and the one who God chose, above all others, to, to create a nation to save the whole world. That's the amazing story. Not because he's necessarily the best person or always does the right thing. He clearly doesn't, but because God simply chose 
him. Yes, I think I read one commentator say that said that Abraham was chosen precisely because he was so ordinary. It's it's hard to see it any other way. And if people want to hear more of this, definitely reach out and let us know. Or if there's a story that you'd like for us that Scott has done, so go check out Scott's catalog. And if there's a story that you'd like to hear us dive into a little bit more, definitely let us know. And uh, I would look forward with talking with you fine gentlemen another time. Absolutely. That is it for this extra special episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next regular episode in a week. And do check out the History in the Bible podcast and the History of the Papacy podcast if you are not already subscribed. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin MacLeod. The clip from my original episode included a little bit of Cinematic Suspense Series Episode 9 by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on a little site called twitter.com at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. You are amazing people. This is Retelling the Bible. And I, as always, am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.